Welcome to Candela. I'm Christopher Hooten. In this episode, my co-host Alan Schaller and I speak with cinematographer Larry Smith. Larry worked as a gaffer on The Shining and chief electrician on Barry Lyndon, earning the trust of director Stanley Kubrick and a place in his inner sanctum. He went on to DP Kubrick's last film, Eyes Wide Shut, which has a conspicuous accolade of being the longest film shoot ever. Larry directed a feature called Trafficker in 2015 and has also collaborated with Drive director Nicholas Winding Refn, DPing two of his key movies, Bronson and Only God Forgives. Larry was on a hotel balcony in Marrakesh when we spoke, so that's why you might hear a bit of birdsong and or Moroccan EDM in the background. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Very lucky to have Larry Smith on the show today. I think our first British DP, which makes a nice, a nice departure. Um, so yeah, Larry, how you doing? Hi, Alan. Hello, Christopher. <laughs> happy to be here. Happy to talk to you. I yeah. was about to say that. Well, it's been all uh, all Americans so far, <laughs> hasn't it? Really? <laughs> yeah. F- flying the flag. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. How's it going, Larry? You're right. Yeah, good. Yeah, we're in prep here in Morocco, in Marrakesh, and um, well, we start principal photography on Monday here, so um, we're yeah, we're in prep. So. And that's a feature, is it? You're out there for? It's an American feature, yeah. Um, and it's all it's all going ahead despite all the craziness. Well, I suppose in Morocco there isn't a huge problem, right? Well, this is the second. I I just finished a film here. We, we got shut down in March um, with a week, ten days to go, and we just went back and finished that in late September, early October. And so I came back, and now I'm out here again, which is. Uh, quite unusual really because I'd never shot in Morocco before this and now I've done two back-to-back films so it's the way it goes that's how life works yeah yeah yeah. so you got um you started out in film as a gaffer is that right that's correct yeah and I know you were you were a gaffer on The Shining and Barry Lyndon uh what was sort of how did you kind of end up there and what other films were you working on and kind of lowered down the crew at that stage well I was working on um obviously other other films before that um I was also doing a lot of commercials which um were um, in those days very, really uh, there was millions of them being shot everywhere, you know. And um, in their infancy, I guess you could say in the in the seventies, and they were quite interesting. I mean, I found them quite exciting to do, um, even though you you work long hours and you know you, you literally worked every day in those days on commercial, and you kind of get sucked into that. So I kind of. I was jumping between commercials and doing features, at, you know, at that at that time. But I'd say I was doing predominantly commercials until I um, got the call to go on um, Barry Lyndon just for a short period of time. Really, they'd just come; they were just coming back from um, from Ireland where they began the shoot, and it was a rush, I think, for them to get back to the south of England and get a load of stately homes ready for um, prepping, ready for shooting Barry Lyndon. Yeah. And I was thinking about, so obviously, you know, from, from there, from working as a gaffer, you ended up as a, as a DP. I was thinking about um, the Paul Thomas Anderson's film, Phantom Thread, um, you know, fairly recently and how that film didn't have a cinematographer and everyone kind of just between the director and the crew, they kind of just sort of worked it out really in terms mm. of the lighting and the positioning. Mm. It, is it the case, do you think, particularly, because obviously that's a film set in Britain with a lot of British crew that with, with British crews, everyone kind of mucks in a little bit or maybe they did in that, period i wouldn't say so no uh, not when you say muck in not uh, not for the visual presentation they might have mucked in you know collaborated in one way or, or, or another i mean i can recall you know with me it was um because i was doing commercials a lot of the directors that went into commercials at that time had come from 
Well, there weren't directors. You know, there was just people that said, we're going to sh- I'm going to be a director on a commercial. Of course, they were film directors. So a lot of people came from stills, the stills background. Some, you know, may have come from um, editing. So there was a quite a cross-section. And um, what I found was that um, most of the directors I happened to work with were people that had a really good understanding of making commercials or film generally, I would say. So they they knew how to direct in the sense that they worked out a way that suited suited them. They knew how to light. They knew how to visually present something. Um, some of them came from um, model making, so they had an ability to make things, you know, uh, pr- pretty much like, you, you know, the way they work in stills, the, the, the stills photographer is, does every, you know, he's the HOD of everything, mm. you know, so he takes the photographs, you know, he he hires the crew, he gets the models, he gets the job from the agency. And a lot of directors work like that in commercial, especially on uh, doing tabletop stuff, um, you know, because it's very specific, you know, it's, it's kind of very subjective, I would say. And so what you don't need in those scenarios is a, is a lot of people around all giving different ideas. What, what the directors I found that I work with, which is why I probably worked with them for, uh, for a long time, was that they, they would employ me as a, as, a, as a gaffer, let's just say, and myself and the director would, would light everything. We would be the DOP director gaffer. And I, I, I felt that that worked really well for that kind of stuff. And then if you went outside and you did, you know, bigger stuff, location stuff with the same director, let's just say, of course, you had a bigger camera crew. You'd have a you know, normal camera crew and, 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 and an art department and everything else. And, and quite often they would <clears throat> employ a, you know, a DP. Uh, well, they would always employ a DP, I would say, um, who, mm. who had a name, you know. But they... In those days, the DPs were also very quite powerful and they wanted to do things their way. And some of these directors kind of had their own ideas. So I think what they started to do with the directors I worked with, they didn't employ DPs. So I would do that job. So I was kind of not really the gaffer. I was the kind of gaffer stroke, you know, if you like, trainee DP. Mm. Yeah, I guess that's what I was getting at really, yeah. Yeah, that's really why I was able to take the route that I did. I I really work with directors more than DPs. I did work with DPs mm-hmm. as well because a lot of the DPs were young and they didn't understand lights or anything. So I had a kind, I had a kind of a different kind of knowledge. I think which is probably what helped me going forward. I've got a question for you, Larry. How do you end up being a DP on a film when you don't understand lights? <laughs> So surely people must have found themselves in the deep end being like, oh, God, I haven't thought this through. <laughs> well, it, they need a good gaffer <laughs> yeah. because the gaffer knows all the lights and the gaffer can, you know, rig a, a, a huge set, you know, get all the lights up and then really it's up to the DP then to balance the light. I mean, a, a DP should at least be able to balance right. a, a lighting set, even if he doesn't know what all the lights are. Mm. So... Um, uh, again, that was part and parcel of my, uh, if you like, um, knowledge. I was able to do that because I just, you know, as I said, I played the role of not just a gaffer. I was somewhere between, you know, the gaffer and the DP, I guess. Yeah. So when you, um, when it came time for 
Eyes Wide Shut to finally happen. I know it had been kicking around for a long time as, as an adaptation. I mean, obviously, uh, a huge amount of time had passed in terms of, you know, when you were working with, with The Shining was what was back in like 1980. And now we're talking about like 1999 for Eyes Wide Shut. And I was just thinking, was it, was it obviously in that time you'd work, you'd become more as a cinematographer, but yeah. I was wondering if it was a case of you saying to Kubrick, I want to DP this or whether he said, Larry, you know, we've worked together before. Do you want to step up and, and DP this? I wonder which way around it was. Yeah, well, I had, you're right. I'd been a DP since 1989 when I got the call um, from Stanley. And I was living, I had been living quite close to him. Um, I was living in St. Albans um, for nine years. Oh, and that's I just literally just down the road from where I, where I grew up. <laughs> yeah, I never saw him in that whole time. That's the longest period from when I met him in 73 that I hadn't physically had a phone call from him. Which is, by the way, not not unusual with, with Stanley um, because he's he's never someone who had, he was best mates with anyone. You know what I mean? It's not like you know you can call your mate Jimmy that you went to school with and you know go and have a few beers. That Stanley didn't operate like that, but he did have close confidants of, of which I can count myself one of those. So the fact that I hadn't heard from him for a long time, and the fact that I was a busy DP by by this time and I also had um, a studio in King's Cross with uh, facility lighting equipment so I had a company which took a lot of running to be to be to be honest so when I did get the call f from him um, uh, about in 1992 to talk about Aryan papers um, which he was in production with, I I didn't know at the time that's why why he called me but when he did call me even though it had been, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12 years, however long it had been, when you know Kubrick, it's not a surprise. Because when he needs you or when he wants some, some information, it, to him it's like normal, as if he spoke to you yesterday. You know, that's just the way he was as a person. He, he wouldn't find that strange that he hadn't spoken to me for a long yeah. time. You know, he just wouldn't. And, and I knew that about him, so it wasn't a surprise to me. So I, I got the call. Um, I was in my office at my studio in, King, in King's Cross and uh, I was actually I was just about to go to the gym. I had my shorts on and stuff and I was there's a gym around the corner I used to go to. And he called about 11 o'clock in the morning and um, they, they put him through to me and we just started chatting about things as if as if I had we were speaking last Friday. <laughs> and we were talking about it's, what movies have you seen? What movies? And at that time, Heat and City Hall had just come out. You remember the movie Heat? And, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, of course. Amazing film, yeah. Yeah, amazing film, wonderful, wonderful. And um, we were just talking about that. And suddenly four hours had gone by. <laughs> I said, Stanley, you know, I've got to go to the gym. And he was like astounded. Why would you, you know, because he never worked, did a workout in his life. Why would you go to the gym? <laughs> I said, well, I go, I go every day. You know, it's just one of those things, you know. And I said, I've got to go. He said, oh, he said, um, and he said, okay, before you go, what new lights are there at, that are out? And I was using, and he liked small lights. He, you know, he, he, was, he, he was just comfortable with these small low light system that he used to own. And and uh, I don't know how familiar you are with film lights, but there's a light called a Dido light, yeah, which is a very small light like that. You can the great light, they're fantastic. And I said, oh, I use these. I've, I've got a few kits of them in the. We've got them in the store here. And he said, oh, can you bring some up and show me? So I said, uh, yeah, I'll bring some up. 
in a, in a few days. He said, no, can you come tonight? Well, he said, can you come now? I said, well, no, I'm going to the gym. So anyway, I went up that evening. I went to the gym <laughs> and I went up there that evening to his house, in the house yeah. that he's now buried in. And um, we we were, well, I had a cup of coffee. And then he said, um, let's go for a ride in the car. So I said, uh, okay. So we went and we, we drove to um, Lady Diana Spencer's home where the brother, you know, where the brother was um, living, um, Earl Spencer, where we were going to, where he had pegged for a, um, a location. Um, I looked around, we talked about, he said, how would you do this? And if exterior, and I said, oh, I'd do this and this. And then I go, we go back. Um, have some coffee. I showed him these lights, which he had zero interest in, in uh, the lights. He just wanted to get me up there to have a chat. I realised afterwards. And I I went home and that was it. And about a month went by and I was at Pinewood Studios and his long-term continuity lady, a lady called June Randell, who's now unfortunately passed away, called me over. She was out, she was out doing a film and she called me over. She said, I'm over. And I said, what, what, what's the matter, June? She said, you're doing Stanley's film. I said, what film? <laughs> because we'd had no, when I went there, there was no talk about any film or anything. It was just, mm. we went in the car, I showed him the lights. We talked a bit of film nonsense for a couple of hours, two or three hours, and I went home. And I said, no, I'm not. She said, yes, you're doing Aryan Papers. I said, I'd never heard. I don't, I'm not. She said, well, you are. Anyway, long and the short it was, as you know, Aryan Papers never got made. It got shelved yeah, uh, because of the Spielberg Schindler's List uh, film. But I ha- can honestly tell you, that was n- there was never any mention of any films, uh, Aryan Papers or anything. And then about another nine months went by, so it's about a year, roughly a year later as my memory serves me, um, I get another call, can you come up to the house again? So I said, um, yeah, okay. So I went up and the same thing, we had a, we talked around for three or four hours and then um, he uh, he said, look, I'm doing this, um, I've got this project. He didn't tell me it was Eyes Watch Out or anything like that. So he said, um, you know, I'm in prep for that. I said, oh, great. The guy never said, you know, do you want to do it or anything like that? I, mean, I guess he was waiting for me in, in a way to say, oh, okay, do you want to tell me about it? But I know Stanley well enough to know if he wants to tell you something, he'll tell you. And if it's something he doesn't want to tell you, you, you didn't, you wouldn't get any information. So I thought, well, I, I'm not going to say anything because I, I don't know, you know. I would be a liar if I didn't say in the back of my mind that I always felt at some stage, and I didn't know when that call would come, that I might get a call from Stanley and he might offer mm. me a film. Because of the relationship I have with him, because I knew him well enough to know he likes to work with people that he's close with, you know. So, but still it was a, a kind of a shock when it all un, unraveled. But I, 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 in the back of my mind, but at this moment in time, there was no talk about any film. So I stay up there for a few hours and then I, then I go home. And then about a week later, Jan Harlan, um, Stanley's brother-in-law pr- producer, called me up and said, Stanley wants to know, you know, if he does this project, would you be interested? Words to that effect. Because there was an elephant in the room of somebody who had done the, the, the film before 
however the discussions were going, it, it, they weren't going well. So I guess you could say I was kind of like on the maybe on the back burner of someone that he could could call on. You know, I, I don't know if that's true, but that that's my sort of reasoning. Uh, so I said, um, well, what is it? He said, well, you, you had to speak with Stanley. So I went back up to the house again. <clears throat> we had another conversation. And he told me he was doing this film called Eyes Wide Shut, which, of course, I knew about because he had this novel when I was first working with him. But I didn't know. Mm. It, was a, it was a period piece then. Same sort of outline story. It was a period piece. Yeah, Tromleville. like Vienna in the early yeah. 20th century or something. Yeah, yeah, I think it was called Tromleville, and it was written by a Danish, uh, it was a Danish book. But I'd never read it. It's it just something I knew bits of it. I knew bits about it. And I knew um, Christiana Stanley's wife hated it. Um, and she didn't ever want him to make it make it because she just thought it was just you know, very voyeuristic and whatever uh, at that time. Um, so it never got made. That was one of the reasons that it got made. Um, so then he started to tell me about it. I said, well, who's in it? And he, he said, Tom, he told me Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. And um, I said, oh, okay. So that was kind of like the conversation. Didn't go much further than that. And so I, I went back and another week I was working, I was busy, another week went by. And then I got another phone call from Jan Harlan. And Jan said, well, what do you think? You know, how? And I said, what do, kind of, what do I think about what? Because there's no offer, there's nothing. It's just, you know, sort of like no. you're just putting things together, building blocks in your. I said, well, he said, well, do you want to? do the film and I said well he hasn't offered me the film he told me about it and yeah bitch oh, Larry come on you know Sandy well enough you know <laughs> he doesn't always you know but I couldn't assume that you know he's offered me this film I, in my wildest dreams I wouldn't have ever assumed that you know I could have assumed he might have said look I know you're a DP now but would you come on and be the gaffer I could understand he might say that um, which of course, I, you know, I wouldn't have done. So he said, um, he said, oh no, no, of course he, he wants you to do it. And I said, well, okay, let, you know, um, let me. I need to read the script. Um, and the script, <laughs> yeah, that would be useful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but but the script, you, the last, it's, Stanley sends the scripts out at the last possible second. He never wants anyone to read it. So so he had to know that I was um, kind of interested. Anyway, so he, he sent me the script, and I, I, I went on. I went on a holiday. I was in the south of France. I drove to the south of France, me and my girlfriend at that time. And I said, I'll read it there. And, um, um, you know, which I did. And then he called me on the way back on the journey. Uh, this was about six days later. It was a lot kind of a long weekend. And I had to pull over because you can't, you don't just say, hello, Stanley, hey, good morning, you know, mm. how are the dogs, how are the cats? You know it's going to be two or three hour conversation. So I pulled mm. over. And he said, well, did you read the script? I said, yeah, nice about the script and everything. So he said, um, okay. He said, well, uh, speak speak to Jan. So I said, okay. Got in the car and drove up. And a couple of days later, Jan phoned, Jan phoned me again and said, um, so what, what have you decided? So I said, well, here's my problem, Jan. I'm a busy DP working three or four days a week on commercials. Because I hadn't talked money or anything at this stage. And this is what I make. I said, that's the first thing. The second thing is I have a company where I, I employ 50 or 60 people. That A lot of that reliance comes from the work I do as a DP because obviously I'm using my lights and my studio and whatever. So it, it it's not straightforward. 
for me mm. um, from a business point of view. Um, and also the other third factor, which I didn't say, is that when you work with Sandy Kubrick, you're, you work 24-7. Yeah. And, you know, I'd given all that up 10 years before because after I left The Shining, I was exhausted, you know, even though I did some some non-paid work on Full Metal Jacket, some advisory talking to him on the phone, you know, but that was easy, you know. But mm. it's a very exhausting. When you work with someone for 10, 11 years, literally ev almost every day, someone like Kubrick, you know, and then you want to do something for yourself and then you break out of that. It's, you know, it's a really is a the, the weight that comes off of your shoulders, you know, and the loyalty factor and all the things that you, you have to build into working with someone like Kubrick. You know, you sort of, you gain a, a foot in height because you feel weighed down for this period of time because he, he did heap loads of work on you or people like me, the, the people in the inner sanctum. So there was a lot of factors to do. To, 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 uh, so I said, I've got to think about this. Give me a few more days. And, um, and so uh, ultimately in between that period, Stanley called me again. And, uh, and he was irritated. You know, he said, you know, kind of irritated. He said, well, do you, you, don't you want to do it? And I said, well, I did explain to, to, to Jan about, you know, and he said, oh, don't worry about it. We'll work that out. He said, because he couldn't understand in his brain why somebody like me, who's just doing commercials, wouldn't want a film credit with him. Mm. You know, and quite, quite rightly so, quite logically, yeah. you know, if you think about it. But I had, you know, I, I just, my life was different. You know, I, I had a different life to the, the early days and I wasn't sure if I wanted to give that up. You know, anyway, the long and the short of it was is that um, uh, Stanley is a very, very diff diff difficult person to say no to. Number one, because I like him. I liked him. He liked me, you know. Number two, I'm quite loyal. You know, I've, I've always been that. It's a kind of loyalty factor that I always, you know, I turn jobs down. to. I have turned jobs down to do really badly paid jobs. And I've cost myself a lot of money because I've said or indicated that I might might do it. So all of those things kind of played in. Yeah. And then ultimately, and of course, I did it. I took the film, you know. Yeah. Well, Sorry, that was a really long answer. but No, know. no, not at all. No, it's, it's fascinating. But um, no, a few things sort of jump out to me there. One thing is, speaking to a lot of cinematographers, a lot of them have had a kind of like real reverence for their commercial work and they take it seriously and they a lot of people i think have turned down mm. quite surprising projects because they're committed in that way but um but there is obviously it, it well at first it's funny that kubrick just assumed you'd do it that yeah. kind of speaks to his yeah, just his yeah. confidence right yeah, yeah but i mean I, I think i was reading about there was a uh kubrick invited his friend michael her who uh helped write full metal jacket right. to uh make some revisions to the script and uh, you know her supposedly said he felt he'd be underpaid and have to commit to a long production so he didn't want to do it but as as you say I mean, there's such a cachet to working with kubrick that even if you you might have to forego, you know, a few very well-paid projects to do this absolutely gargantuan one. You know, the mm. the, mm. the benefit of having a, a Kubrick film in your filmography has got to be pretty huge, yeah. right? Yeah, um, it's funny. But, yeah. yeah. Well, but, of course, uh, the other thing I would just add, add to that is is that I, I know the way he worked, right? And, and ultimately, whoever's on the film, it doesn't matter, it could be the biggest actor in the world, biggest DP in the world, production designer, et cetera. Ultimately, there's only one person that controls every aspect of that film, and that's Kubrick. 
Mm. You know, when you work, do a Stanley Kubrick film, you have to understand that you put yourself in his hands and you do anything that he wants you to do. So I knew this because I've done two films with him, you know, and um, and spent a lot of time with him, you know, at, at his house in between films. And if you think about it, if you look at the, the, the chronology of his films, if you go back to 2001, the cinematographer on that was um, Jeff Unsworth, wonderful, wonderful, classical British cinematographer. And he was employed as the DOP. Well, clearly he couldn't carry out his work as a DOP, you know, as as he, as he had done before on any other film with any other director. And you can see, you've only got to look at some of the stills when Stanley's talking to him about whatever it was and he's, the pained expression on his face, you know, where, you know, he didn't agree with, let's do this, or he didn't think this would work or whatever. I'm, I'm assuming this, just I'm, I'm still photographed. Um, but the thing you have to understand about Kubrick was he was in his own right a cinematographer. You know, he learned mm. about everything. He knew about everything. So he knew about lenses, he knew about light, and he also had the ability, if he didn't know about something, to go off and test it until he did learn about it, which is a very rare commodity, you know, which is why he's filmed yeah. so, so long. So when Jeff finished 2001 and he left just, you know, sometime before the end, John Alcott, who was his focus puller, his first assistant, took over and did, they did were doing model work and, and stuff like that. So it's quite logical from, if you look at the pattern from then, then John Alcott did Clockwork Orange. He wasn't a cinematographer. He'd done some extra cinematography on 2001, but he was part of the inner sanctum and Stanley was comfortable with him because he knew that he could always take over himself, you know, and just get John to do the heavy lifting of being a cinematographer, you know, getting the sets lit or whatever. And he had a very good gaffer as well, two very good gaffers on that as well. So then John's progress from Clockwork Orange to Barry Lyndon he, from that point, he's now a cinematographer after the film because he started, I worked with him quite a lot after that, John, actually. I got to know him with his cover. He was doing mostly commercials, but then he started doing a couple of films. Then he did Barry Lyndon and got an Oscar. Um, mm. um, and then, of course, you know, The Shining came up. And uh, and I asked John, I, and by this time, John was a very big cinematographer. And I asked said to him when he, you know, when he came on... Um, uh, the Shining, and I'd been on The Shining for a year before John ever came on. I, I did all lit all the sets with with Kubrick. We designed all the lighting, and um, and I said to John, you know, John, I'm really surprised you've come back and done another film with Stanley, three films, because they had had some falling outs on The Shining and also on even and Barry Lyndon, and he he felt that he just needed to do one more film with Stanley, which I was I didn't personally think he did because he was a big he was a name by then but anyway which he did so he did the shining he left it before the end doug milsom took over who was the focus puller you, you see the you know you see the yeah. ascendancy yeah. here doug wasn't a cinematographer he um got the credits extra photography and then stanley brought him on to full metal jacket because he was part of the inner sanctum and he, again he knew he could control him you know um, yeah and Doug, of course, was only too happy to do it. Now, with me, I'm a cinematographer, so I know what all the pitfalls are. I'm a cine have been for like by this time, fourteen or fifteen years. So I wasn't prepared 
another reason why I thought about it, as, as much as I knew the credit would be good, but I wasn't prepared to suddenly be on something for a year and a half or two years and just be not have any form of control. So that was mm. another factor in my thinking, you know, because I'm, yeah. I, I, um, but anyway, the long and short yeah. was I did it. Did you, um, I wanted to ask if, you know, obviously Kubrick died, I think six days after he turned in a cut to, uh, well, for Cruz and Kidman to look over and for Warner Brothers to look over as well. Did you, when you were first speaking to him, did you get a sense that this was a director, you know, thinking about making their last film, their last contribution? No, no, but he was only, because he was only 69. Yeah. So no, I would not have. That was in my mind. But what I did know in that this period of time when I hadn't seen him, he'd been quite sick, and I knew that when I was with him, I could see his. He would, you know, he he was on medication. Some days he took it, and some days he didn't. And maybe when he would walk, he would put his arm on the wall. And I knew, you know, this is a man never worked out a day in his life. He used to smoke a lot. Used to have a bad diet back in the early days. But he did try to sort himself out in between these years that I saw him because his father was a doctor and he used to get his father to prescribe for him. He, he never went to doctors, Stanley. He would talk to his dad and his dad would say, well, you need to do this, this and this. He hated going outside of his environment, you know. you know, it was, it, That was a major step to go outside. Um, not because he was scared. He's, he didn't want it. I can sort this out. You know, I can, my dad's a doctor, you know. So I knew he hadn't been well. I didn't know the extent of that, and I, I found out later what it was. It was all to do with his heart. And he actually checked himself in the hospital, and he'd never done that before, so that's how serious it was. Um, but I knew he he wasn't 100%, but I thought, it, you know, I, I would have said, you know, even though I talked to people that knew him very well, we said this could be his last film, not because we thought he was going to die, but we, he might suddenly say, you know what, I've had enough. I'm not in the best of health. Mm. So that was a shock yeah. to me when I when that happened. Yeah. Well, getting into the kind of production on, on the film, um, obviously, you know, it's infamously, I think it's even got a Guinness World Record as like, you know, one of the longest shoots. I think it was from the principal photography in November 96 to June 98. There was a, a, a period of like sort of, was it 46 unbroken weeks of shooting and that kind of thing? I mean, <laughs> what I also thought was quite funny, just a random tidbit, was that, um, I don't know if this is true, but supposedly because Kubrick had a fear of flying, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all the film was shot in England and they had, you know, swathes of Greenwich Village recreated. I just, I think it's funny that, you know, he expects so much out of his crew and so much out of his cast, but the guy won't fly to America to shoot him. No, he doesn't. He his fear of flying. It, no, he doesn't. And the, and the, and it, the Aryan papers, uh, I'm told, because obviously I wasn't involved in that, because they were going to shoot that sort of uh, in Europe and around Belgium, Holland, you know, Flanders, all those places where those historic battles were. But but they they went by car, you know, they went in the tunnel or or they went by boat, and he never he never flew, and he never flew because he 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 used to fly when he was young, he had a pilot's license when he was very young, um, apparently, and um, he you know for a period of time he would he would fly this plane and one day he, he nearly crashed it, he ran out of petrol, I believe. Mm. Uh, I mean I don't know if it's hundred percent accurate, you'd have to research, but I believe this is true, to be true. And his logic was, I've got my life in my own hands. And if I can't work out that I need X amount of fuel in this plane, you know, you know or, or, or make sure this plane is airworthy, what faith, what trust can I have in someone I don't know? And that was how he 
he that's how he thought about things you know he that thought about a real level uh, of control freak yeah, <laughs> yeah he, you know he he yeah what you know when his children were getting cars and he used to talk to me about what car should i get them i need them to be safe so he'd research all the cars what is the strongest one in an accident if it turned over and did this or a lorry hit it you know that was his level of if you you could say paranoia but that's just how he was as a person you know he would think about and worry about all these things so um so he never moved outside of England from, um, I think, f- after Lolita. He may have gone back, and, uh, but it, uh, there he was living in the UK from then until yeah. when he died, you know? Yes. Well, so this this is the this is the big question, really, and then I'll let Alan jump in afterwards because I've been, I've been hugging the airtime. But um, so how does a film that is mostly interiors, a couple of sort of street shots, but essentially kind of a lot of the time two actors in you know one ballroom and a hotel room how the hell does it take two years to shoot well <laughs> what, what, what I knew was where it you were, i knew where you were going with that. <laughs> I, let me let me enlighten you with a conversation i had with sydney pollock who came in and took over the role of uh, ziegler from harvey cattell and uh, i'm speaking to sydney um on the set of the um the, the, almost the end scene in in the big billiard room when he's having the conversation and he's telling him, "Well, we, you know, this is we know what you were doing, you know, blah blah blah." And um, and I'm just standing there talking. It's like eight nine in the morning, and um, and he was all dressed, immaculate, in his dinner suit, ready for the. Oh, and this was just a rehearsal week because Tom Cruise had gone off to do a, what, a premiere of a film he'd shot that he was contracted to do, so he had to go for a week. So I'm talk, just chatting to Sydney, and I said to Sydney, Sydney. How long do you think it would have taken you to shoot this film? Bearing in mind, Sidney Pollard's a great director with a wonderful body of work, right? Because in my head, I thought this is a 16-week film for me, right? Yeah. Maybe 20. Not with Stanley, but with, as a film script. Um, and he, he thought about it. He said, well, if I was working for Warner Brothers, which we were as a Warner Brothers film, he said they would probably give me 12 weeks to do this. So I went, oh, really? I, I said, I thought 16, mate. He said, no, they would give me 12. Bearing in mind, big director, right? So, yeah. You know? And then he said, and then he's, he put his hand on his chin like pretty much like, and he said, and, but then two things would happen. Number one, if I never shot for a week and we, we had breaks where we didn't shoot, we'd test and do, you know, which we were on this week, we were just rehearsing. He said, if I didn't shoot for a week, they would fire me. That would be the first thing they would do. And the second thing they would do, he said, they would sue me. <laughs> Not the best environment for creativity, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what I'm saying? And we shot for, well, you said how many, how many 45 un, unbroken weeks, you know? Yeah. Um, but also you should, you should also check out an, uh, 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 something that Jan Harlan said about the way Stanley worked, because he didn't have big crews. You know, he, he hated big crews. I mean, you, you sometimes you have to have them, but he he hated it because it was he could see money. You know, was it necessary to have the? But Jan said, and it's an absolute truth. He said the thing is with on the Stanley Kubrick film, you can go two hundred percent over schedule, two hundred percent, which we probably did on that because I think the original the original script was only. I think it was about 16 weeks or 20 weeks or some, something, the original schedule, sorry. He said you can go 200% over schedule, but only 10% over budget. Yeah. 
And that's right. where he was smart, man. That's where he was super smart. Yeah. Well, I guess all that time we're talking a hell of a lot of takes, a few reshoots with different actors coming Correct. in and out, Correct. a lot of Correct. camera tests and the kind of getting into the detail. Is that is that is that broadly what was what was yeah. kind of yeah. taking up the time? Yeah, we would we would test. We tested everything to death. I mean, this is what he always did. You know, before we shot anything, you know, we would test all the sets. We knew what the exposure was going to be. We knew what we were telling the labs how to print the film. Because nobody had any involvement in the process apart from rank stroke deluxe labs process the film. But that's all they did. They didn't have a colorist saying, oh, I'm going to print this at 32, 31, 29. No, we gave them the printer lights. Mm. It's incredible when you think about it. We mm. gave them the printer lights. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what they printed every single day until we told them to maybe change something. Yeah. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you about those uh, kind of they're almost like mythical uh, the the Kubrick point seven lenses that were what like developed by NASA weren't they? Correct. Yeah, they were. They were uh, NASA lenses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I've I've got a lens that opens up to point nine five. Uh, it's a fifty mil, and it's almost impossible to use <laughs> unless you're doing a portrait. Yeah, uh, I, I can't imagine what focus pulling or anything. Or yeah. I mean, I, I understand that on Eyes Wide Shut, you used you didn't use those lenses. We tr um, we got them out, we tested them, and then we we didn't need them. We didn't need. Them. I mean, they, they they must have been a bit of a nightmare to use. They were. Right? Those. They were. Well, we, obviously, we used them on Barry Lyndon, and obviously, yeah. Doug, Doug, Doug Milson, who became the cinematographer on um, Full Metal Jacket, was um, was the A camera first uh, first assistant. Um, mm. And there was, we, I mean, we had many focus pullers, but Doug was like the main one. Um, John Alcott came from a was a wonderful focus puller when he was a focus puller as a technician. So there was very good people. They, they, he had them. He bought them from NASA. He had them all rebuilt and recalibrated in Los Angeles. By Ed, mm. Ed DiGiorno, as I as I recall, and then we yeah. used them on Barry Lyndon um, for certain shots. We didn't use them all the, time, yeah, all the time, but we used them for certain shots. And Stanley, because he could, he could test these things out. And he and and and, and because he was always big on focus, mm. things had to be sharp, sharp, sharp. You know, um, it was all about getting these shots so he didn't have a problem with focus and he didn't have to keep doing it. Even though he did keep doing it, regardless, because that's the way yeah. you know, you know the way he worked. But they were a pain to use to set up, and you know, um, but they look great. I mean, they look wonderful. Well. Yeah, they, they they look wonderful. And he wanted to use them on um, Eyes Wide Shut, based on the fact that Tom Cruise, at that time, was the biggest male star in the world, and Sidney Pollack had worked with Robert Redford. Mm. At the same period in his career, when he was a superstar, and, he, and they, the, the the stories that he told about the when uh, Robert Redford was anywhere near anyone, he would be in his caravan, and the women would just smash the windows and try to get in there and push the the trailer over. So that made him paranoid. You know, we can't have that. So we don't. We we've got to find a way not to shoot without any lights. You know. Well, in that period of time, we've gone. We got. There was an 800 ASA film stock that was out. We had fast yeah. uh, lenses that had come out. So that we came up with the idea, he came up with the idea, I should say, to force develop the film two stops. 
for every frame of film that we shot. And I was resistant. This comes back to the story I was telling you about me being a DP and being resistant to certain things. I never thought we had to do that. I, I just didn't, I, I, you know, I, I was very reluctant to to do that. Um, but he had rhymed and reasoned. He'd worked out the focus. And when we're shooting in certain places, we can't have loads of big trucks and generators because people are going to know it's a film. Therefore, they're going to quickly work out. Tom Cruise is there, all these things. Well, even if you don't use any lights, you're always going to have 10 trucks for the wardrobe, for the, you know. So it's a, that was a kind of a, a, a <laughs> misnomer yeah. that, really, you know. So, um, yeah. so, um, and, and I also knew, and Stanley knows this because he knows about this side of the business as well. When you're forced developing something, it's not a science, it's quite hit and miss. Even though we had our own dedicated bath, which was a night bath because of the hours we were shooting. You know, if I'm the if I'm the night bath supervisor and he puts the film in and he's going to time it, how long it's going to go in, it's going to come out this side after, you know, say, for argument, say 20 seconds. Mm. The lab phone rings on the wall, okay? He goes over Hopefully to pick that. that up, which is very common. <laughs> the film's been in there too long. You know, no. so you know there was a lot of discrepancies in the film over the over the years. Of course, which I got the blame for. <laughs> you know, you you must have got <laughs> the exposure wrong, or you got this, but it wasn't. I knew I knew what it was. You know, and it, but um, and then when eventually we kind of found out we had uh, we broke some rushes when when we were doing the scene where um, Tom Cruise gets caught in the in the mask ball. We were shooting that scene and we broke the rushes and we sent the rushes off, and then we carried on shooting. And the next day we got those rushes back and we looked at them mm. and number one, they were that there was more detail in them than what the day before stuff. And when we got the later rushes back of the ones we broke, they'd, they'd obviously been developed exactly how all the other stuff was. And they were a little darker, a little bit richer and, and uh, crispier. And he was like, mm. what happened? I, and I said, well, clearly you can see there's a the difference. We shot the film at the same time. We broke the mags, we got it in. So it's not an exposure thing. It's a it's a it's a it's a laboratory thing. Yeah, I think you always. And, do. and there's so much. Yeah, like, like you said, there's so much variation in that. Mm. And uh, you know, p particularly for younger listeners listening now, who may never have experienced film. Mm. Um, I mean, Premiere Pro and all those programs just make it so nice and easy, don't they? Mm. With, yeah. with nice repeatable settings and even like auto balancing of. Of exposures and stuff, yeah, which I'm guessing would have saved you guys a lot of time. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, no. yeah, it means you don't get a night bath supervisor, though. It's uh, what a lovely, lovely thing. No, and a, and a, and a cool thing. I mean, that, I mean, yeah. still, it still happens, but there's the amount of film that goes through, you know, through the chemical process today is you, you probably wouldn't need a night bath unless you were shooting. Strange hours, you know, set that up. But, um, it's really funny to think um, it, the amount of kind of literature that's probably been written about practical lighting in Kubrick films and Eyes Wide Shut and, you know, going yeah. really deep into the reasons behind it. And actually, partly it was just because we could, didn't want many trucks so Tom Cruise yeah. would now yeah, be through his window. <laughs> I know it was more than that. It was yeah, like, it yeah. was a creative reason too, but. Yeah. Yeah. Well, certainly that was, you know, on, on, on The Shining, we did that, uh, but we built all the lights, but they weren't necessarily household practical lights you know they would have been photo floods which would look like the normal practice because the film slot was well it, i think we i think we had 400 asa that, that yeah. it was rated at 400 asa or 320 with a filter i guess um but we were going down that route of of you know 
using everything that was practical or make or it certainly looked like it was all practical anyway um and then obviously by the time i don't really know what they did on on um, full metal jacket because it's a different kind of movie you know so i don't really know i mean i i know that certain kind of lights they use but clearly for eyes wide shut that you know the technology had moved on so much for that then it was very simple to shoot um using literally all practicals and i'd been doing that anyway literally for for years you know, so it was it was yeah. a very common theme for both of us. Yeah, I remember a while back I was making like a a, a no budget for little film, and the, the DP was like, a, "Oh, we, let's let's use a." We had a party scene. He was like, "Let's use a bunch of fairy light nets." Uh, I hadn't seen Eyes Wide Shut at this point, and he, I think, he'd taken the idea from there. He was like, "Yeah," and I was like, yeah. "Really?" I was like, "This is going to look surely it's going to look really amateurish, but it it will look like a student film, but it looked great. Yeah. They look awesome, yeah. obviously." And then you get they all turn to bokeh, and it's yeah. So it's actually a really nice, simple but effective thing. You know, I, I, I've always said, you know, and and you do hear this from directors. You do you you do something, and they say, "Are you going to like this?" And you go, "It's lit." And they go, "They're like, really." especially now in the modern era with digital because things are darker than your you know your eye is darker than the reality it used to be your eye was always saw more than the film saw film stock saw but now digital sees more in certain yeah, situations than your, your than, than your eye sees so it looks naturally dark you think oh i need to turn the dimmers up or do, you know do some of that that's kind of so some people walk in the set they feel it's dark but it, what the cinematographers job is is mm. to manipulate the image within that framework uh and and, and a good cinematographer you know he's not going to put a light up because someone thinks it's dark he's going to say see the rushes and then tell me it's dark or you know or something like that and to be honest now with digital just look at the the, the monitors yeah look at the dit monitors don't worry about the set just go and look at the calibrated dit mm. monitors that's what you're getting. Yeah, I've, I've been, or I'm, less what you're getting. I've had a little bit of experience working with uh, or, or, or seeing the product of the raw footage captured by like Arri cameras these days, and and it's 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 pretty scary. Yeah, how um, yeah. that that dynamic range is is so extreme now, because um, you can like capture like mm. you know high, bulbs aren't blowing out, but also all the detail and the shadow is there as well. It's like. It's, it's, it's kind of, it's a little mm, bit, mm, um, mm. I almost found it a little bit uh, unnatural because it's so stretched that mm. it, I, I, I know they do it to give you maximum mm. kind of like a spectral, you know, maximum scope for editing later on. But I, I don't know, I found it really hard to mm. push, to like get the camera to underexpose properly. Like it just wasn't doing it. It was like yeah. too, too good. at yeah. <laughs> It took yeah. like extreme measures. Well, what you do, you, you you find yourself in a in a situation where you're going around turning lights off, <laughs> not to, not putting them on, um, you know. And of course, it's it's the flip. You you flip things on. Uh, you've done 180. How you would expose for film, or how you kind of expose for digital? Because in film, you have to always protect the shadow area. That's right. And on yeah. digital, you have to protect the highlights. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a, well, that, that's the way I work. You know, I, t I protect the highlights because normally there's that's plenty right, of detail yeah. in the shadow areas. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm I'm a huge fan of, of low light and using practical lighting, and I know Alan is as well. You know, his his street photography is his main thing, and you you don't have the luxury of being like, can you bring in an M18 in here? And <laughs> yeah. you know, you've got to use what's there. Yeah, exactly. But 
but yeah, you, the fact that you, I mean, it was Christmas tree lights, sort of fairy lights. I think, mm. I believe you had some like Chinese paper lamps. Yeah. But lights, yeah. Lots of yeah. Stuff going, yeah. I mean, yeah. As, as someone who shoots, I, I shoot all the time in black and white. So, so, so the use of color in, in, in films, I find actually quite interesting because I don't know that much about it. But I did notice that the color red kept coming up. Uh, in Eyes Wide Shut for uh, kind of like danger scenes, so like the um, the scene with the with the with the snooker table where it's obviously so red, and you got the guy in the red cloak. Um, I don't know. Are those that, that that must have been deliberate? I, I, if it was, I had no part in it. Interesting. So I was going to ask whether whether that was something that was discussed all the time. You know, being like, because no. because the, the the colours did seem quite deliberate. Uh, like then they were very strong, but I don't know if if. Well, well anyway, I never. I wasn't a party to that conversation, and I never heard that. I have read that that people assume that that might have been um, deliberate, and it was you know to, to signal danger, and 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 it may well have been, but I certainly there was no discussions from a lighting okay, point. That's, no, that's interesting. So I've always wondered how whether these things just happen, whether mm. people read into stuff too much. Because um, there's that yeah. famous uh, bit in The Godfather in the first film where whenever an an, uh, an orange is in yeah. Don Corleone's yeah. hand, some, yeah. someone is about to die. Someone's going to die. That, so, yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I, that, that stuff annoys me yeah. so much. People do it with Breaking Bad the worst. They're like, yeah. you know, if a character's wearing yeah. yellow, it means this is about to happen. No, it's no, like, but, 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 sure. but in The Godfather, every time a bloody orange is around, someone gets shot. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. I never, I hadn't thought about that, but you're, you're right. It's true. Yeah. He's like, yeah. yeah. And, and it's, yeah. I, I'm sitting there thinking, is this, is this like a little mini Easter egg that they yeah. put in, or is it like a, yeah. um, yeah. so, so they're all sitting there like, yeah, 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 yeah you know, discussing. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, it'd be uh, remiss not to talk about like post production briefly on Eyes, Eyes Wide Shut because it it must have been very strange, you know, especially with mm. with Kubrick passing away during it, and obviously there's been huge amounts of sort of rumor and gossip about whether or not it was a finished film and, you know, whether he was proud of it or whether he wasn't. What was your experience of the film as it, as it ended up in, well, in that, I, that era? He, he definitely finished it. I, I mean, I think they might, he might have just still been tinkering with the sound a little bit, but as a finished, it, you know, uh, as a, uh, it was a cut movie. Um, um, I know he was happy with all the music. I mean, I mean, what I do know on the night that he died, cause I was up in, um, I was up shooting something in Manchester, um, and um, when I found out, you know, you you can imagine, you know, there was kind of chaos, you know. But um, I called his uh, assistant Tony Fruin because uh, I had his number, and I, I knew I could get straight through to Tony, whereas it would have been difficult to speak to any of the family, you know. And um, and he sort of chatted me through it. He said um, it, it was, I believe, it was a Friday night. Um, and he was in a very, very good mood. Um, Sam was in a good mood, laughing and humming and whatever. And he'd sent the film off for them to look at in New York. Terry Samuels, Tom and Nico, I think, and um, I don't know who else, maybe Sidney Pollock was there. I don't know. And um, things were great. And he went to bed that night and never woke up. So, um, you know, from... As far as I, I can ascertain, and from what I know, it, the movie was finished. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Well, one other 
kind of thing that stood out. This this is a, a kind of a, a, a weird rumor, but that the film pushed everyone so far. And I think some people think that in a way, the reason that Tom Cruise has switched to moving, like working more on action films and films where he has a lot of control is because it was such a, you know, radical auteur experience working on Eyes Wide Shut and kind of being beholden to a director mm. that it kind of pushed him to breaking point a little mm. bit. I don't know what, mm. I mean, obviously you, you knew Kubrick well enough to know what you were signing up for, but I guess it probably was a tough shoot and there probably were moments for everyone where it was like, Jesus Christ, like, is this ever going to, are we going to yeah, get to well, the end, you know? Obviously I hadn't, I hadn't worked with Tom before that. Um, I, I'd heard that he doesn't like doing a lot of takes. He's, you know, two free take person, you know, doesn't like hanging around on the set, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but when I've seen interviews with Tom, and I, I never discussed this with him sort of at length, you know, I talked to him about Stanley. Mm. He, he's such a film person, Tom. Whether you like his acting or his films, he's, he's, he's such a... Yeah. Oh, I love the guy. He's always in the moment. And, of course, Kubrick was a, 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 a... He was a huge fan of Kubrick's work, especially 2001 and stuff like that. And um, he, um, you know, he, he, he's... Tom's never going to be short of money, right? So he can do what he wants when he wants. And he can go and work with Stanley Kubrick, which he did for 18 months, in, or to two, I think almost two years. He never did another film in that time. Never did another. He put himself solely in Stanley's hands because he had that respect that he wanted to work with him, and he just thought this would be a great experience, and, and etc. And to be honest, I can only remember one moment where there was any little conflict, irritation, where he just got weighed down with the amount of takes he was doing because he didn't know what he needed to do to get Stanley to say that's great, and we've got it. You know, and this was actually in the in that same scene in the snooker room, and uh, and most of we all stood out. You know, it was really a close set. Even you know, it was just even I, I would look at the monitors outside. There would just be Stanley, Tom, and Sidney Pollock, um, and um, um, the operator, camera operator, um, and um, and he just and he and he stormed off to set. And I, was, you know, I don't know what's going on, and he was back in two minutes. Tom, he didn't go to his caravan, so I'm not yeah. working today or anything like that. So, um, you saw the women and you then know, turned around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, um, he, he didn't, you know, he, it didn't seem to be a problem for him to work completely outside of his comfort zone. I, I think Jack Nicholson said pretty much the same thing. You know, um, he always felt, I do, if you want me to do 50 takes, 60 takes, and 40 rehearsal, okay. But the best take would be take two, in his mind. Yeah. You know, um, I, I, again, what takes Danny used on those, I don't know. Whether he used the takes Jack thought were the best or not, I don't know. But, you know, I think when you work with that's the way he is. He's, his reputation precedes him. So it's not you, when you go and work with Kubrick as an actor, mm. for example, you don't know what you're getting into. You may not think it can be this as bad as this and it'll be easier. But if you don't know that before you go into work, then you haven't really done your research, I would say. Yeah. Is it your impression that he, he, he liked to get 50 takes because he genuinely thought, I want 50 options of this and I want to be able to sift through them? Or do you think he was trying to push people to that breaking point a little bit to get something mm. new and interesting mm. out of them? Mm. Well, I would say that, the, the latter. Uh, is true. He, he was waiting for something to happen that, you know, that, yeah, 
brought him to life, you know. Well, there's, um, there's, there's a very famous story of uh, George Martin recording Twist and Shout at the Beatles. And it was the yeah. last, they cut the yeah. whole album in a day, and which is insane. That is insane. But, yeah, or like, or like a day and a half or something, because that's all the budget they were given, which is so funny yeah. uh, when you think about how... Yeah. You know, they should have maybe given them a bit more budget considering what it earned them back. Yeah. Um, but but uh, on Twist and Shout, it, he wasn't singing it in the way that he wanted and, and he kept pausing it halfway through and just saying, do it again, do it again, do it again. And John was getting really angry and um, started swearing down, you know, being like, screw you, I'm out of here. And so, uh, you know, when you hear the song and he's actually like really raspy and almost half shouting it, that's because he's really pissed off and he's mm. actually done it so many takes that he was... Yeah. And, and anyway, and he was like, there you go, that we're, we're done. And he let him, he let him do it in a, yeah. in a take. And, and, yeah. and, and, and that was a very deliberate kind of... Yeah, it's drawing yeah. out a process. And you do hear that in the voice, you're right. You hear that yeah. in his voice and, 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 and when he's I singing to his characters doing that, just to just to get an actor mm. out of their comfort zone a bit. Yeah. And to and to produce something different. Yeah. I think the problem is you know, with actors, well, not just actors, any any of us, you know, um, when we're doing something, you do something one way and say, oh, no, can you do it? Yeah, we'll do it that. And you you do it three or four ways, and then you actually don't know what how to do it another way you know you just you think well I, what, what, I don't know what you want what do you mean that you know so actors you can understand who are you know can be a bit sensitive you know and also a, a bit paranoid whatever you know I can imagine with an actor they lose it completely rather than you get this bit of magic you know that you just go oh, I, I just you know you've completely crushed me but he has seemed to have this ability Sammy where he could Dragged him along, or sometimes he would say, "All right, let's let's cut it there, and you know, let's uh, let's rethink this." Mm. And he would rethink it, yeah. and then we'd go home, or that they would go home, and we would do a few lighting tests that evening. We could give him a chance to relax and think about it, you know. And then the next day, we would come in and maybe rehearse it and do it a different way, right. you know, until he got whatever he was looking for the day before. You know? Yeah. Well, you have a real history of working with kind of very idiosyncratic directors, really, because obviously, you know, you've worked with Nicholas Vinding Refn as well, who I'm a, a huge fan of. Yeah. And I've always, yeah. I've really respected that guy for, you know, every, most people know him for Drive. And, you know, that yeah. was such a well, successful... Before that push, well, that, yeah, the wider yeah, audience well. going for but, Drive. You know, yeah. yeah, there were obviously yeah. great films before that as well, but that was the one that really broke through. And he could, mm. he could so easily have, from there, have ended up, you know, making Marvel films or Warner Brothers films to the end of time, but he's really mm. stuck to his vision and mm. continues to make very weird and interesting films and TV shows. And obviously you worked on one of those, uh, Only God Forgives, that I think he made, came straight after Drive, which is even more a push in that direction in terms of like tone and mood. And I'd love to just hear a bit about that film because visually it's so arresting you know set in bangkok and yeah i think i always love about a lot of nicholas's work is with the lighting you know it doesn't even kind of pretend to kind of be go for realism at all it goes super super wacky and super colorful and just yeah it just seems like a real theatrical yeah a real (laughs) a real kind of like playground and uh yeah interesting you hear like how that your experience of that film? Yeah. Well, I did I did three films with him. I did his very first film called uh, Fear X, which he hates, and I thought was <laughs> a really interesting film. No violence. John Turturro played the lead role. Not a, it was a psychological thriller. We shot it in um, Canada. 
That's the first time I, I, I worked with him. And then I, um, then I did Bronson yeah. with him. And then we did only, um, God forgives. I did a little television thing with him as well uh, in between that. Uh, well, only, what happened on Only God Forgives, we were going to shoot Only God Forgives. And then Drive came in. Ryan Gosling had, had asked for Nicholas to do it. He hadn't met him, but he liked what he was seeing. Mm. And um, so the, Nick, Nicholas did it. Um, I think, you know, the films he'd been doing in the past, he didn't really make any money from, you know, as a director or as a, as a production company. They, in fact, they, they all lost money, I think. And, um, um, and this was an opportunity to do a Hollywood movie uh, with Ryan Gosling um, and get paid, you know, a, a decent salary. So I knew about when I because I knew about this and and I because I was going to do it, and um, but the original script was nothing like the script that the, the film uh, that we that you saw and I saw. Uh, it was a high moving, you know, uh, car rig, you know, shootout mixture of Bond and Mission Impossible. Well, yeah, I won't go that far, but it, it was all car flashing through streets. That's not Nicholas' his style. No. He, he's not. He, he's not. That he's not into that. He doesn't get it. You know. So somehow he got involved in the script. He didn't write the original, the original script, and um, and somehow I think with, in conjunction with with Ryan, they came up with the script that you um, that, that ended up being in the in the movie, which, as you know, was no fast driving cars. There was just that one. But I love that opening scene. Mm. Where he, he's almost, if you didn't know better, you say he's almost manoeuvring the car on a, like a hovercraft. It's like, shh, nothing fast about it. It's all yeah. calm and collective. Take it down. I love that. That, to me, was refreshing. Yeah. To see so a car refreshing. chase and, and like that. From, almost entirely from the interior of the car, and like not worrying exactly. about big sweeping yeah. shots. Yeah. Uh, exactly. So, um, um, and there are stories behind that, which are, you know, which are kind of, I won't go into, but that I know about about that whole scene and whatever, and um, and then Drive, as you know, was 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 successful, but that meant that Only God Forgives got shelved because you know it it, it was already financed Only God Forgives by you know Nordic films and you know the the, the Scandinavian uh, people that put money into it. And I think Wild Bunch put some money into it, um, uh, Gourmet maybe. Anyway, so. Um, Eventually, a year or so later, we go to um, to Bangkok to shoot um, uh, Only God Forgives. And um, I don't if you know Thailand or if you know Bangkok in particular, it's a strange. It, it, it's it's a it's a city of two halves. You've got day and you've got night. Day, you wouldn't go to Bangkok. No. <laughs> if someone paid you to be there oh, during God, the day to so shoot a movie it's the worst it's boring it's hot the skies are white there's nothing there visually no. that's interesting loads and loads of like modes, like roads I remember just I just constant yeah. like like uh, what's it called like flyovers everywhere correct yeah the, the sky trains yeah. there yeah, and all of that like, yeah. but you, suddenly <laughs> you go you go as soon as, as soon as it's dark 6 o'clock 6 7 o'clock it's like wow it's just this visual feast mm. of mismatch colours and lights. And uh, we, I think we shot for seven weeks or something on that. I can't remember. And I, I, you know, I'm just about to go into some more now this week, but I hate night work. Mm. 
it's something I've always tried to avoid, you know, doing working through the night. One night, two nights, okay. But this film, I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, this has to be shot at night. And I'm thinking, it's going to be seven weeks of night. I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, shit, dear, can I, you know. And in the end, I said, look, this is, there was a couple of, a bit of day stuff in there, of course, but I said, this is a film that needs to be shot at night. And which is what we ended up doing. And so I just what basically what uh, basically what happened was it was there was it was a very low budget film. There was no real set design. You know, everything was there, more or less. Some 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 bits and bits, but everything there was no construction. You know, there might have been a wall got painted or some wallpaper put up in in here, but generally speaking, every, everything was there. And as a DP, when you go into some of these places that there's nothing for you to work off of, nothing for you to bounce off mm. of. It's a very, it's very cha- challenging. It's very difficult. And the opening scene uh, when he comes in the back room and he's talking to the brother, and the, the boxer's in there. You, you know that when mm. we've got all those cut out. But that was all the first day sh- uh, shooting. Um, that was all white. It wasn't painted. It wasn't black. There was no props in there there was nothing there was a couple of metal things where the guys got changed but there was no set there were no windows there was nothing and you know you go into that and you think i don't know what to do here because everything's white and whatever i do it's going to look like shit so (laughs) as you do you kind of as you have to do you get challenged in a different way and those cut out bricks, you know, that people put in there. You used to put in their garden, didn't they? Make walls from them, your, yeah. from your neighbour, concrete. Breeze, you, you breeze know, blocks you know, type things. There are breeze blocks with shapes yeah. in, right? Well, they had them up in the top of this dressing room, you know, about a foot or so from the ceiling. And then they had them as partition walls to so that that would be another changing room around there. They're all open from here, but it's, you know. So I thought, well, let's see if I can do something with that. So I... While we were shooting in the main part of the gym, I took got the electricians around and I said, "Just give, just hit, put something through there. Let me just see the shape, what it gives. Turn that. There were no other lights on, and uh, I thought, oh, maybe that's interesting. And I said, "Oh, show me this color, show me this saturated amber I put on there." And and it kind of went from there basically. And what it gave you was it was it enabled you to turn those really boring white walls into a saturated color, like the red was there, the deep red and the amber. And it just gave it a per- some personality, and um, and I, uh, uh, and so I just figured after that, I just thought after that, well, you know, I think this is going to be the theme for the film. It's, it's going to be saturated colour without any rhyme or reason or, yeah. or any logic, but just something that looks kind of interesting. And that's pretty much what happened from day one. Really. Well, kudos to you, Larry, because if you weren't given much, I mean, it looks absolutely fantastic. So you did a great well, job. You, well, that's what I'm saying. You get challenged in a way. You know, it's a bit like, you know, like someone says, oh, let, we're going to go to a party with a, oh, who's going to be there? Oh, you know what? I don't fancy that. I, you know what? I've got things I'm going to do. You don't want to go. You're resistant. You go to the party, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> you have the best time ever. <laughs> and that's how, it, that's kind of how it was. You know what yeah. I mean? It sort of, we got into doing things and it was looking in, interesting. And I kind of, that was my kind of like solace, if, if you want. Yeah, there's some. Because it was a, 
tricky film some, to shoot. Yeah, yeah, some really interesting visuals in it. I remember the, all the kind of karaoke scenes were really kind of interesting. Yeah. There's, there's always a, a POV shot of, of his hands coming up kind of slowly that always stands out to me that was very yeah. cool. Yeah, um, we, yeah, that was something, yeah, that Nicholas built a lot of these things, you know, because at the end scene, yeah, he always wanted to shoot the end scene where Ryan's hands get chopped off and dogs, we had two dogs there that bite the <laughs> hands and run them away. They, they wouldn't run away with these fake hands. But, um, you know, that kind of developed, that sort of theme developed. And um, and also, um, obviously, because Ryan did it, he wasn't originally going to do it. It was, um, he had another actor in mind, Nicholas, and who pulled out and went on, I think he did some on Game of Thrones or something. Not Game of Thrones, um What's that thing that they shot in New Zealand? Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. He, and then Ryan, who worked with him on, on Drive, was writing his own movie, the thing that, the, the thing that he shot himself, that he directed himself. But he was writing a script, which I, I didn't know about. So he, said, he actually said to Nicholas, look, he said, I'm not doing anything. I'll come and do it for you. Because um, they couldn't have ever afforded Ryan Gosling no. in that film, you know. And he came and did it as a sort of a friend, as a mate, if you like. And, and But all the time he was writing his uh, own script. And he brought a camera. He had a camera that he owned and he brought that. And we actually used it as one of our free cameras. Um, um, and then, because Ryan Gosling was on it, they gave the mother part, offered the mother part to Christian uh, Scott Thomas. Mm. Which she was one. I mean, I mean, I, I to me, she carried the film. Yeah, she is her great. role yeah, in it. She's was, always was great, wonderful. Yeah. But she she wouldn't have been on it if Ryan Gosling wasn't. No, it? she was no way she was going to come to Bangkok <laughs> yeah. and play this. Well, that was, that was for very little money. She, she was wonderful. Yeah, it was a real yeah, coup to get Gosling great. because you know it's, it's such a still role as well with minimal dialogue. Yeah. I, I don't know if another yeah, exactly. actor could kind of carry your attention in the way we're, we're huge Ryan yeah. Gosling fans here. Like I honestly mm. think he's like he's like our yeah. Brando of this generation. Uh, something yeah. just so magnetic yeah. about him. And he's great, and he's he's such low maintenance. He's such a nice bloke, <laughs> you know. He's, he's he is one of the chaps, you know. It, you know, you you'd be out with him all the time, or whatever. I mean, not all the time, you know. But I mean, you know, he, he's always around. Yeah, he's not precious. He's not precious. Yeah, he's a good, he's a good guy. And then he asked me to do his um, to collaborate with him on his film that he was shooting in Detroit. This it was a, you know on this script, and uh, and in the end, I, I I and I was I did. Was doing some with work with him talking about it, and in the end, he, he wanted me to go um, and sort of collaborate through the whole prep period, which would have been months. It, it, there was he had no money to shoot it, um, literally had very little money to shoot it. And um, but I was working on the script, the film I did, Trafficker, and um, I went back to Bang Bangkok, so I I just couldn't do it. It wasn't um, it's was just something I couldn't do, unfortunately. Yeah, I've not seen the the film he, he directed actually. We need to look into that. We do indeed. Yeah. Well, I mean, I could I could talk to you about these films for hours and hours, but I don't want to detain you for too long today. And I know you've got you've got a shoot at some point. You've got really yeah. got to get to your call. Yeah. But um, we we haven't had yeah. time to touch on like Bronson, which is obviously great as well. But is there any other mm. any other films sort of from your filmography? I guess that you're particularly proud of that you think people should check out if they might not have necessarily seen. Um. Well. Um. A film I really enjoyed working uh, on um, uh, because of the cast as much as anything and because of the director, who was a first-time director, um, that I liked uh, as a piece of work was um, The Man Who Knew Infinity with Jeremy Irons and Dev Patel um, because it's a true story um, about uh, an Indian mathematician who had all these amazing theories 
that they couldn't decipher. They took him to Cambridge. It's, it's a true story. Yeah, R- yeah. Raman John, it's about a guy called Yeah, I love working on that because of the story. I love working on that because I like the director a lot. And, this, and Jeremy, I love. Mm. I've worked with Jeremy before. And Dev's great. He's a bit like Ryan. He's so low maintenance. You know, he's like, do anything you want, you know, funny. And, and that's, you know, to do films, because you spend so much of your life away from home and with people, um, and not always necessarily people you particularly want to be around or, you know, have anything in common with. So when you do work and um, do a film when you all of that's in place, it's such a, a memorable experience. And, um, and, and as, uh, oddly enough, it's, it goes in peaks and troughs. You know, you get, you know, two really films that you didn't enjoy at all and you think and it's tiring, it saps your energy. And then suddenly you'll you'll get a film out of the blue, which I did at film in New York last year with a husband and wife directing team. Now, if you think about that, that you think that's got to be hard work. 100%. You know, a husband and wife directing together. Hard work know. without the director. But, you know, it was... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's my point. But, you know, what? it was such a dream to work. They were such a dream to work with, both New York couple. And I thought, wow, this is... It, uh, it was a hard film for us the directors and myself, even though it was a decent budget, you know, it was like 20-odd million budget. But it was, there was lots of challenging aspects of it. But as a team, you know, we got on um, really well and it was an enjoyable three months. Yeah, that's such a a great part of the filmmaking experience, isn't it? You know, that you, you end up in Bangkok or wherever you are with a group of people that you probably wouldn't necessarily normally be around. Mm. And yeah, sure, at times it's probably a bit annoying and you kind of miss your family and it goes on a bit too long. But at the same time, what an incredible kind of situation to, yeah. to be in. Yeah, no, absolutely. You, I, I don't think I could have done anything else anyway. We all talk about this. All my team are here and when we, we talk about, and they're all different sort of ages. Some have been in the business longer than others. And and the reality is, is if you talk to all of them, as much as they can be critical of certain productions, we all say the same thing. You know, what would we have done if we weren't doing this? Mm. You know, <laughs> um, it's hard to know, isn't it? You fall into it somehow and then you, you just, that's it. You do that for the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Was there, was there anything else, Alan, you wanted to ask? We... No, I think that's a really nice way to end it, actually. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I, I agree. Yeah. yeah, thanks so much for your time today, Larry. It's uh, super interesting to yeah, hear about pleasure. the real real moments in film history, so it's incredible to hear from yeah, someone so, so much on the ground for them. Yeah, no, pleasure. No, absolute pleasure. Yeah. Great. Yeah. All right, guys, have a good day. Have a good day, too. All right, mate, you too. See you soon. Take care.